following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. We are in our series where we're going through our statement of faith. Thanks, Scott, last week for doing just a fantastic job discussing God the Father and the character and nature of God. Today is the next section in our statement of faith, and this has to do with Jesus. So let's start by simply reading it. We believe in the historical reality of Jesus Christ as the only incarnation of God. We believe in his deity, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his miracles, his substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his intercession for the sins of his people, and his future personal return in power and glory. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you might recognize what all that language means, or you might have just heard the language, but were never quite sure what it meant. If you didn't grow up in the church, some of that might sound a little odd, uh, like some of the words, I don't know what they mean, or why is he sitting down somewhere with God? So I want to go through this phrase by phrase this morning and just talk about what each of these things mean. First of all, we believe in the historical reality of Jesus Christ as the only incarnation of God, and we believe in his deity. The claim of this is that Jesus is unique. There is only one person who is like Jesus in the history of the world. So he wasn't simply an enlightened being like Buddhism would claim. Jesus wasn't just one of thousands of gods who deserve your attention like Hinduism would claim. He's not just a prophet as Islam says. He's not the kind of being that we can one day become, which is what Mormonism teaches. The miracle of the incarnation is that Jesus remained fully God and yet becomes fully human in his life as a man. And if you go through the Old Testament, you'll see some examples where God makes himself known to people. These are called theophanies. I'm not going to explain that further. You can look that up if you'd like. But when we talk about the incarnation, this was a one-time event Never has been replicated in the history of the world. Never happened before. God becomes human, remaining fully divine and becoming fully human in this fantastic mix of heaven meeting earth. We believe in his virgin birth. And if you're wanting a scientific explanation for how this happens, I don't have one. I've heard a lot of criticisms of Christianity uh, pointing out that you can't get pregnant if you're a virgin. Correct, this is why we, th we are believers in miracles, which we'll get to in the next part of the statement here. There is something miraculous about this event. God accomplished something supernaturally that never would have happened naturally. So we don't claim that God had sex with Mary, like the Greeks and the Romans would have said their gods were doing with people. Somehow, in a way that honored Mary's purity, we see heaven and earth become one in the person of Jesus Christ. We talked a couple months ago about motifs that run through Scripture. I would point you back to Genesis 1, where the Spirit of God moves over the face of the water. Where there was no life, God's Spirit moves, He creates life, and from this life comes the first Adam. Well, here we see in Mary... In her womb, there was no life, and the Spirit of God moves. And in that place, there is life, what 1 Corinthians calls the last Adam. So in some ways, you see a bit of a bookend to two parts of history as God works miraculously. We believe in his sinless life. So there's two claims to this. One is that he was tempted as we are. That's why the Bible says Jesus is a sympathetic advocate for us. 
If we pray and we say, oh, dear God, do you know the kind of temptation? Do you know, do you know the power of this? Jesus experienced temptation like we experience temptation. But he resisted as God. He never compromised. He retained his perfect holiness in the midst of the temptation here on earth. We believe in his miracles. So let's talk about science for a little bit. So when we study the natural world with the scientific method, we refer to things we call scientific laws. And scientific laws are just ways of describing what we see happen so often in the course of nature that for all practical purposes, it's, it's um, helpful to view it as having laws embedded in the very fabric of reality. And we would agree with this. God created the world. He designed it. He meant for it to unfold in a particular kind of way. One of the criticisms of the Christian faith is that when we talk about the miraculous, what we're saying is that God somehow breaks his own laws, that he made this nice orderly universe, and then we're going to say, except when God doesn't want it to work this way, he has no problem breaking his laws. I don't think that's the correct way to view it. What we're talking about is with God as part of reality, there is a broader and a larger set of laws that govern our lives. And let me see if I can give an example that helps. C.S. Lewis used an example of a fishbowl. So what you have here, I wish there was a multiple fish, but that's okay. You've got a fishbowl on a table, and as far as the fish know, this is their world. We're going to assume that the fish can't see outside the glass. This is their world. And someone walks along one day and bumps this table that the fish are sitting on, and inside this fishbowl, it also has rocks and trees and things like that. And the trees kind of wave, and the water moves, and the pebbles shift, and the fish is like, what is going on? And he looks around the fishbowl, and he says, I have no explanation for what just happened based on the laws of my fishbowl. And the laws of the fishbowl were real things, and they were good things. This fish had studied the fishbowl for a long time, and he knew how things worked. But what he didn't understand was that this fishbowl was part of something bigger. And that when something, in this case, knocked the table, or if a breeze would come through an open window, if you have a really flimsy aquarium, it's going to impact it. Not because it's breaking the laws of the fishbowl, but the fishbowl was part of something bigger. And for the fishbowl not to respond to what's going on around it, that would have been a violation of the way things were intended to work. So when we talk about the miraculous, what we're making a claim as Christians is that there's two parts to the world. There's a physical part of the world, and science does a pretty good job of studying that. But there's a supernatural side of the world as well. We as Christians are what's called dualists because we believe both these things are part of our reality. And so when God chooses to interact with his physical world, with this fishbowl that we live in, and he... he uh, I'm going to use, I think, human language here that's flawed, but um, he inserts himself into the process, he interjects himself, he interacts with it, you name it. He's not breaking his good world. His good world is responding exactly as it was tended to when God interacts with it. So in other words, our orderly and predictable fishbowl is designed to function within the framework of a much bigger reality. We don't understand it based on what we can see and study, and we can't do it, but God can. So as Christians, we make a claim not only that the world responds to the miraculous work of God, but that Jesus, as God, did miracles as well. When we read the accounts of scriptures, if you find yourself skeptical about the miracles that Jesus did, 
I understand it can be a hurdle to overcome, but just understand as Christians, our claim is that God can do what he wants, and he does miraculous things. He interjects himself into the world, and nature responds to him as he moves. We believe in his substitutionary death. So I want to try to do a a visual for this, but the idea is this, that when God demands justice, He also provides mercy because God is both justice and mercy. I want to go back to what Scott talked about last week with this idea of God being simple. God doesn't have parts. I think sometimes we could think of um, here's God and he's got this section. We'll give it a whole arm. This is his justice. This is right arm of justice. This is his left arm of mercy. And sometimes he uses this and sometimes he uses this. But actually, I don't think that's the best way to think about it because God doesn't have parts. He's unified. And so when we think of the way, if you were watching what that visual was trying to do up there, they're all together with God. When God extends justice, he's not extending justice separate of his mercy. It is a merciful justice. When he extends mercy, it is a just mercy. They are not two separate parts of God's character. They are always present and always at work. So what we see on the cross is an expression of God's justice and mercy together because a God of righteousness demands justice and that justice is fulfilled on the cross, but also on that cross we see the fullest expression of his mercy toward us. I want to go back to an analogy from Scripture to help us understand this idea of what we call substitutionary atonement. We need our sins to be atoned for. Jesus is the substitute. Uh, there's other ways that people talk about what the crucifixion accomplished. We can discuss that in, Mex- in Message Plus. But I think this is the foundational thing we're supposed to understand from Scripture. So let's talk about kingdoms and kings. We don't live in a kingdom with a king. We live in a very different kind of system. We're used to living in this constitutional republic or this democracy where we have power and our voice can be heard and we elect people to represent us and we have a, a lot of both uh, freedom and power that for the people at the time of the writing of the Bible, they just wouldn't have understood that. Uh, We had kings and kingdoms. And so I think it's helpful to keep in mind that when the Bible gives us the language of sin, and I think there's lots of analogies to help us understand it, the original audience would have understood it in this analogy. And I want to just give you a couple points about what that means on understanding the reality of sin and why it's important that Jesus died for us. So think of it this way. When God is the king, law-breaking is a sin, a treasonous dishonoring of the lawgiver who is the king. The king's justice demands that the price of this treasonous sin be paid, and the price of treason is death. If the price is paid by the offender, the offender's record will be cleared, but it will be too late. The offender is dead. However, as an act of mercy, the offender can be forgiven and live if the price is paid by a substitute. But if the one who offers to pay the debt of the sinner is also sinful, they'll simply be paying their own sinful debt. The one for whom they're giving their life will not benefit. Therefore, the only answer is a sinless person. And in this case, it is the king himself, the lawgiver. So a payment is offered by the faultless king for the treasonous sinner. And if they accept this redemption, they're not only forgiven, they're adopted into the king's family. 
That's the basic idea of sin. We ask, why does sin bother God? Because it's treason against the king. What is the price for treason? The price is death. How do I pay for that? I can't. Who can? Only the king. And this is the only time, I believe, as you study any religion, that a claim is made that God himself, the king himself, who was offended by treasonous lawbreakers, steps in and gives himself to pay the price that he set so that we don't have to pay that price. That's the idea of the substitutionary death of Jesus. We believe in his bodily resurrection from the dead. So if the cross shows us the lengths he's willing to go to save us, the resurrection shows us he has the power to do it. We who were dead in our trespasses and sin uh, were brought to life spiritually in this life and with the promise of life in the world to come. And we look at this and we say, okay, one thing that was shown through this, if death isn't strong enough to hold Jesus, nothing is. It shows he has the ultimate power in the universe. His ascension to the right hand of the Father is an image. Don't think of it as God literally walking upstairs steps to heaven. This is an image of power sitting at the right hand. So Jesus didn't rise in broken weakness after his crucifixion. When he arose, he rose in power. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus' glory was consummated or perfected in its suffering. And, and this is us as humans struggling with language to try to explain something because it's not like Jesus wasn't glorious before. It's kind of like if you thought he was glorious before he went through this suffering and resurrection, you ought to see him now. Like, it's, it's even more amazing. And once again, that it's us as humans struggling to explain this because God's nature doesn't change, but there's something about Jesus enduring the cross and despising the shame. Uh, we are meant to understand, if we didn't before, this is a God of power. This is a God of majesty and a God of glory. We believe in Jesus' intercession for his people. Um, and here's where it's going to feel a little more personal, if I do, do my job correctly. All right, I think we're prone to point at the sins of others. I think we have this tendency to look around us and go, oh, um, Paul, now there's a sinner. I know what Paul did. Hmm, there's Becky. There's a sinner. Where's Pete? Because <laughs> can't let Pete off the hook here. That's pretty easy to do and, frankly, can be kind of fun <laughs> put people in the spot, right? I think we're good at pointing at sin, but that's not a biblical way to think about sin or a biblical way to wrestle with sin because one of the things that happens is we become so busy trying to identify the sins around us and the people that do them and what we should do for them or what God needs to do for them that we can take our eyes off of what's going on in our own lives. Uh, I'll often hear this idea that God is judging America because of. And almost always, when I hear someone use that phrase, it'll be because of something someone else is doing. It's hard for us to envision that perhaps God ought to judge America because of us. So when someone says, well, God's judging America because of X, it makes me wonder why they're leaving every other treasonous sin off the list. I mean, God ought to judge America because of pride. 
ought to judge America because of lust, anger, theft, deceit, rebellion. I have a long list of things here in my notes. Hardness of heart, meanness. And there's, there's all kinds of things that the Bible describes as treasonous sins that are an offense to our king. But what I think is easy for us to do is go, oh, that person is really offending God. So, oh God, let justice roll down and deal with that person who is so offensive to you. But what are we missing? What's the last time we thought, God really ought to judge America because of people like me? We don't use that phrase, do we? That's an uncomfortable phrase. But the reality is, I am the kind of person, remember us talking this about a couple weeks ago? I am the kind of person who, at times, chooses to do sins that are a slap in the face of God. Okay, if God ought not bring judgment for that, what ought he bring judgment for? Right, so that's me and that's you. I thought it would be amusing to have you turn to the person next to you going, that's you, but that's not the point. (laughs) Maybe you should look at the person next to you and go, that's me. Now, we're going to talk about the glory of forgiveness and redemption but I I just don't think we can understand the glory of forgiveness and redemption if we don't understand the seriousness of what sin is. So let me see if I can make it a little more personal. If everyone in the room nailed it except for you, Corbin, if everyone in the room just nailed it except for you, man, they did nothing wrong. It, It was just you. Do you know what Jesus would have to do for you, Corbin? He'd have to live, he'd have to die, he'd have to resurrect, he'd have to intercede for you. He would have to do everything just for you, Corbin, even if everybody else is perfect. Now you're wondering if I'm going to say your name. Brenda? (laughs) If everybody everybody else in this room nailed it, and you were the only one, broke God's law. Jesus would have to become human and live a perfect life and die with the weight of your sin on his shoulders and rise again and advocate just for you. And he would. Right? So if you're thinking, um, I hope my spouse is getting this or I wish my kids were here or I wonder if Anthony's listening to his own sermon because they really need to be broken that you're missing the point. I think we have to understand the nature of sin and the, the havoc sin has played in our lives and in the world around us to really understand the beauty of grace. So why did Jesus have to become human? Because of your sin. Why did Jesus have to die? Because of you. Why does Jesus intercede for you now? Why does he have to continue to function as an advocate? Because you keep sitting. We all on the same page here? Okay, so why would I highlight this in a sermon about Jesus? Because that really feels like a downer. Because once again, I think if we don't see the reality of our sin, we won't appreciate the awesome nature of Jesus. Jesus. 
who died for us and who intercedes for us. So once again, this is the king against whom we have committed treason. And that king says, I will pay your price. I will take the weight and the burden of your sin. I will die the death that you should have died so that you can live the life that only I can give. And then, as you come into my family, which is astonishing, as you come into my family, now you're a child of the king. When you continue to stumble and fall, um, I'll intercede. I'll continue to help. I won't be the one who pushes you away. I will continue to love you. So we might get all the theology we want. I mean, I, I hope that as I went through the different parts of our statement on Jesus this morning, it helps you understand what we mean by that language. So we might understand what incarnation is, what substitutionary atonement is in our heads. Uh, maybe we've watched The Passion. We've sent the Jesus movie all around the world. We're watching The Chosen right now, which if you've not heard of this, ask me later. But if it's all just head knowledge, and in some ways it feels like something that's done for people out there, and we just think this is a message everybody else needs to hear, and that's true, by the way, it is a message everybody else needs to hear, but if that's where we settle, I don't think we're ever going to appreciate the glory of Jesus. It has to settle here. It has to start with that recognition, uh, I am a sinner saved by grace, what did John Newton write? Saved a wretch like me. I think the original was it save a worm like me, but that was too uncomfortable, so we upgraded it to wretch. But there's something about letting that settle in so that we understand when we hear the phrase, Jesus loves you, it, it simultaneously baffles us and intrigues us and draws us toward this this king that still loves me? I, I know I use examples of Sheila and I a lot, but I'll just use one again. Well, I don't think this is new. I think I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. When I am confident that I am the man, like when Sheila married me, that was just a gift to Sheila. Like, happy birthday. <laughs> um, at Christmas, you just... I've already given you myself for 364 days this year. Everything else, uh, what do you give someone who has everything like me? <laughs> if that's the way I think, I will never appreciate it when Sheila says, I love you. Because then I'd be going, of course you do. How could you not? But it's when I am aware that my, my words have wounded her or I have failed to steward her, that I, I haven't loved her well and I've prior, prioritized other things and I've overlooked and I've dismissed her and I've not been present. It's at those moments where I think, oh dear God, what does she get herself into? It's in those moments when she says, I love you now, now. That's intriguing to me. Like, seriously? Because I don't think I am desirable at this point. Um, I clearly haven't done something to prove that I'm love like, and yet she says she loves me. Huh. That's humbling. That's intriguing. I want to know more about this kind of person who sees me at my worst and even experiences the pain of having to do life with me and still says I love you. 
Right, so do you understand when I see myself honestly, it's when I understand the meaningfulness of Sheila's love for me. Does that make sense? I think it's the same way with Jesus. If we think we're just a gift to the kingdom, like, oh, wow, um, God is lucky to get me. Like, do you know the skills that I bring? <laughs> right, when I think that, I'll never understand. When Jesus says, I love you, once again, I'm going to think, of course you do. But it's when I bring myself in full awareness of my brokenness and my sinfulness and my treasonous heart. And I stand before the king and the king says, hey, hand under my chin, lifts me up. I love you. How? How was this possible? Now, now I'm humbled and I'm intrigued. And I want to know more about this king, this savior that does this kind of thing for me. See, God did not come into the world to condemn the world, or Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. I'm not bringing up this thing of sin in our lives to bring condemnation to you. Your sin has done that already. Uh, Jesus came so that condemned people like us could be saved. Tim Keller puts it this way, and I like this kind of condensing of this idea. The gospel of justifying faith means that while Christians are in themselves still sinful and sinning, yet in Christ, in God's sight, they are accepted and righteous. So we could say we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope at the very same time. This creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. It means that the more you see your own flaws and sins, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to you. We must say to ourselves something like this. Well, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you're so attractive to me. No, he was in agony, and he looked down on us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him, and in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved us, not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. And then we as image bearers of God, which we share with all of humanity, and then as we become this temple of God's presence, we become this witness. Our lives, our words, all of these things become this witness of Christ in us, which is the hope of glory. And then finally, his future personal return and power and glory. So there's a day when everyone will see the power and glory of Jesus. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.